Before we dive into this episode of The Storyteller Naked Villainy, listener discretion is advised, as this podcast deals with murder, domestic abuse, coercive control and stalking. For ad-free, early release and exclusive content, head to the Patreon. Details in the show notes. Now, let's begin. Previously on The Storyteller, Naked Villainy, confronting a killer. Did you kill your ex-wife, Mr Harrison? It's a simple question. A family devastated. A knock on the door and the police came, said, uh, do you know Brenda Page? And I said, oh yes, she's my sister. And the charges against her killer are finally heard in court. He, Christopher Merlin Harnett Harrison, did force entry to said flat, repeatedly strike her on the head and body with a blunt implement, and he did murder her. It's taken 45 years to bring a killer to court, and for the first time in UK history, you'll hear the full murder trial and witness justice being done. It was a brutal murder of a brilliant woman who was a rising star in genetic research. It would now be almost like a script from Morse. The investigators swarming over the, the dreaming spires of university land. There was kind of palpable feeling of evil in the air. I was told it was just a massive blood in here. Two decades on from confronting evil. So did you kill your ex-wife Brenda Page? Evil is being confronted by the law. Did you kill her? No. She knew it was coming. He said he was going to kill her. If he killed her, he would do it so that nobody would know. Will his true nature be unmasked? Are you familiar with the tale of Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde? And can Brenda's own words help secure her killer's fate? A letter of a death foretold. This is the storyteller, Naked Villainy, Written, produced and edited by me, Isla Traquair. There was an electric feeling in the High Court in Aberdeen. After nearly six months of waiting following a false start, the jury had been sworn in and we were finally going to hear the details surrounding what had been one of Scotland's most fascinating cold cases. It's why it was the subject of a documentary I made in the early 2000s, An unsolved murder is a painful weight for any police officer to carry. Many involved in the investigation have since died. One such officer was Bill Adams, the former Deputy Chief Constable. He'd been retired for 17 years at the time I spoke with him. Because it's never been solved and we're 25 years on, is it one that still crosses your mind if you're driving in the Allen Street part of town or or something comes into your head about it? Yes, yes it does. Uh, I, I pass that way quite often. Uh, and uh, like many other murders, and I, I know of quite a few that have not been cleared up, uh, I always consider the possibilities, what if, if we had gone this way instead of that way, uh, would the end result have been different? And these memories stay with you, stay with an investigator. Why do you think that this particular case wasn't solved? 
its complexity. Murders generally are domestic affairs. More people are killed because of domestic difficulties than people are killed in the streets by strangers. It so happened that the principal actors in this case were talented scientists. I'm not going to say any more in that respect, but it is a facet in the investigation that added to the complexity and uh, made it difficult for the police to deal with. Did you find it frustrating and did you feel frustrated for the, the officers who were out and about doing the investigations that you didn't get the result you wanted? That situation is always frustrating. Uh, they work full out from morning to night. There's no question of going home until the stroke of midnight on any given day. The team need to be encouraged to believe that the next door that they knock on will provide the answer to the dilemma. And you carry on until you can no longer exercise that stimulus on the activities of the investigating team. Uh, that is a very great difficulty. There's great pressure on the investigating officer and there's great pressure on all of the officers, including the chief constable, because the community at large don't like uncleared mysteries. And what would you like to see happen? What would I like to see happen? Well, they say that that sort of guilt knowledge of murder and the hounds closing in would go with a person until the day they die. I can think of one or two murders that have excited this feeling in myself that one day it'll come right, it'll come out. One day, perhaps, all will be made known. And this was that day. With the jury sworn in, Judge Lord Richardson took them through some important legal points, including keeping an open mind until the case was concluded, to not discuss the case with anyone, to not look up anything on the case on the internet, and the roles of each person. To start, you and I have very different functions in this trial. My job is to ensure that the trial is conducted fairly, and in accordance with the law. You, the jury, will decide whether or not the charges are proved on the evidence presented in the trial. And you will reach your verdicts only on the basis of the evidence in court. You, the jury, are the judges of the facts of the case. But you're not detectives. It follows, and I must stress this very strongly, that you must not make any investigations or inquiries of your own about anything or anyone connected to this case or any issue it raises. He explained about examination-in-chief, cross-examination and re-examination and also about the fact the case was being recorded. He assured them they would not be identified. It would take an entire episode to play you his whole speech as he goes into great detail about what the definitions of reliable and credible witnesses are, evidence, circumstantial evidence, and how they should treat them. In essence, he tells them that it's up to them, with their collective life experience, to decide who 
and what they believe, while applying the legal framework to those decisions. Let me turn now and explain a bit more about how the trial will work. The prosecution is brought by the Crown. That's the name given to the public prosecutor in Scotland. The Crown has to prove the charges and it seeks to do so by presenting evidence. The case for the Crown is presented by the Advocate Depute. He is assisted by Miss Morgan. They are sitting at the table to my right. Mr. Harrison is represented by Mr. McConaughey. He's just turning round now. He is assisted by Mr. Brannigan and Miss Davidson, who are, and they are all sitting at the table to my left. In Scotland, there are no opening speeches. And after I have stopped speaking to you, perhaps after a short adjournment, the Crown will begin its case. Sometimes evidence is agreed or is unchallenged. And if so, it's recorded in a statement of facts known as a joint minute. I understand there is a joint minute which has been agreed in this case and that that will be read to you at or near the beginning of the Crown case. The judge's instructions are extremely important and that's why he has to go into so much detail. One of the hardest things to explain to a jury is reasonable doubt. It's for you to decide what weight, what importance should be given to a piece of evidence. And ultimately, you will have to consider what conclusions you can draw from the evidence, and in particular, whether you are satisfied beyond reasonable doubt that the crime you're considering was committed and that it was the accused who committed it. Every accused person is presumed to be innocent until proved guilty. Accused persons do not have to prove their innocence. Secondly, it is for the Crown, the prosecution, to prove the guilt of the accused on the charge, on the charges which the accused faces. If that's not done, an acquittal must result. The Crown has the burden of proving guilt. Thirdly, the Crown must establish guilt beyond reasonable doubt. Now, a reasonable doubt is a doubt arising from the evidence and one based on reason, not on sympathy or on prejudice. It's not some fanciful doubt or theoretical speculation. A reasonable doubt is the sort of doubt that would make you pause or hesitate before taking an important decision in the practical conduct of your own lives. Proof beyond reasonable doubt is less than certainty, but it is more than a suspicion of guilt and more than a probability of guilt. Before the first witness, the joint minute was read out. There's a lot of information in this, but don't worry. Much of it will be repeated or explained in the evidence. Well, good afternoon. Have a good afternoon. Thank you, my lord. Lord, I'm very grateful to my learned friends uh, for their cooperation. We've been able to agree a significant amount of evidence and I would propose opening the Crown case uh, with Miss Morgan reading that document to the ladies and gentlemen. There are copies available. Miss Morgan. In the High Court of Justiciary, joint minute of agreement in the cause, His Majesty's Advocate against 
Christopher Merlin Harnett Harrison, the accused. The Advocate Deputy for the Crown and Davidson for the accused concur in stating to the court that the following facts are agreed and should be admitted in evidence. 1. Brenda Marilyn Page, Brenda Page was born on 23rd February 1946 in Ipswich. 2. She attended University College London where she studied zoology attaining a first class honours Bachelor of Science degree. She thereafter attained a PhD in genetics from the University of Glasgow. 3. During her time in Glasgow, on or about 1970, Brenda Page met Christopher Merlin Harnett Harrison, Christopher Harrison accused, who worked as a researcher at the Virus Research Institute in Glasgow. They formed a relationship. The accused and Brenda Page were married at Ipswich on 6 May 1972. It continues for, in October 1973, Brenda Page was appointed as the principal of the genetics department at the University of Aberdeen Medical School. The accused continued his own PhD studies in Edinburgh. Five, in 1974, the accused secured a research post at the Biochemistry Department at the University of Aberdeen. The accused and Brenda Page bought and resided at 12 Mile End Place, Aberdeen. Six, in June 1976, Brenda Page commenced divorce proceedings against the accused. On 28th July 1976, she moved into her newly bought flat at 13 Allen Street, Aberdeen. Seven. 13 Allen Street consists of a tenement block within a residential street in Aberdeen. The block consists of six flats, with Brenda Page's flat being situated at the ground floor left. There are two flats on each floor. Her flat comprised of two bedrooms, living room, bathroom and kitchen. There is a large enclosed communal garden to the rear. 8. During October 1976, Brenda Page and the accused attended a genetics conference in Mexico. 9. Decree of divorce was granted at the Court of Session in Edinburgh on the 27th of October 1977. 10. During May 1978, Brenda Page and the accused attended a genetics conference in Vienna. 11. On Friday the 14th of July 1978, Brenda Page failed to turn up for work. There was no answer to the home telephone. 12. About 1,500 hours that day, Gordon Stephen, now deceased, attended Brenda Page's flat. He rang the doorbell of her flat, but got no reply. 13. Access to Brenda Page's flat was granted by Elizabeth Gordon, one of her neighbours. Mrs Gordon used a key Brenda Page had previously given her to enter the flat. On entering the flat, Elizabeth Gordon went into Brenda Page's bedroom where she observed Brenda Page lying on her back on the bed, covered in blood and lifeless. She left the flat immediately and advised Gordon Stephen of her findings. The police were called. 14. Detective Sergeant Eric Jensen, together with scene of crime officers William Bailey and Terence Major, attended the flat and commenced a scene of crime investigation. 15. 
Brenda Page's body was angled across the width of the bed with her legs over the side of the bed and her feet on the floor. She was wearing a nightdress. The bedding around her and her nightdress were heavily blood soaked and she had obvious open wounds to the head. 16. A post-mortem examination was conducted on Brenda Page by Dr William Hendry. She was found to have sustained multiple injuries to the top, back of her head and a small fracture at the base of her skull. The injuries on top of her head appeared to have been caused by an unknown instrument. The cause of death was found to be inhalation of blood. These findings were reviewed during a reinvestigation by, by Professor James Grieve and Dr Marjorie Turner. Their findings concur with the findings by Dr Hendry. Signed, the Advocate Depute and Davidson, Counsel for the Accused. Before we get into the evidence, I need to explain that this will be edited but I'll paraphrase sections without changing the meaning. This is purely because it would be extremely lengthy to hear everything. I also edit out the gaps when pieces of evidence are being retrieved, the swearing in of each witness and the instructions the judge gives to each witness with regards to speaking up, asking for anything to be repeated if they can't hear or don't understand, etc. The advocate deputy, the prosecutor, is Alec Prentice, KC. He's extremely experienced and has led many high-profile cases for the Crown. He's smart in his appearance with neat, blonde-brown hair, bright blue eyes and dark-rimmed glasses. He has a kind face. You'll get a sense of his warm demeanour throughout. He's by the book, thorough, fair, but he also has an ability to go straight for the jugular when needed, earning him a few nicknames such as the Silent Assassin. The first witness is Rita Ling, Brenda's sister, who's appearing via video link from Ipswich in England. This is the second time that she's been poised, ready to give evidence. Are you Rita Ling? Yes. Forgive me for asking, but would you tell us your age, please? 88. He asks her whether she's retired and she laughs. She explains that she was a school teacher and 12 years older than Brenda. But despite the age difference, they were close. They remained close despite Brenda moving away. They phoned often and wrote letters. Kit had visited them in Ipswich, but not very often. While Brenda Page was in a relationship with Kit Harrison, did she give you any indication as to whether it was a happy relationship or not? At the beginning, yes. Did that change? She, yes. She said it was like walking on eggshells. And it was unpredictable. Could be very nice or very nasty. Was this before they became married? No, after. Rita was shown a letter with her sister's handwriting. It's a long time ago, but she identifies her sister's trait of underlining words. The letter is put on the screen, and the court sees a flash of the content. Aggression. Control. 
The AD states he's not yet concerned with the content. He'd return to that later. In the early days of the marriage, did Brenda give you an, any indication as to how things were in the relationship? Not at the beginning. When did you first understand that things had changed? Well, I can't remember exactly when. The, the first time I know, knew that he had hurt her was when she came home with a mark on her forehead. Do you recall? And she, I don't recall when that was, but I was told that it was caused by a book being thrown at her. Who told you that? Brenda did. Yeah, thank you. Did you see a scar or mark? I saw a red mark, yes. Did Brenda do anything to hide the mark? Yes, she changed her parting. What did that achieve? Well, I noticed at once that she changed the parting and asked her why. And then she said what had happened. Did she ever complain about anything else in relation to her hair? She did say that it got pulled occasionally. Who, it was very long. Who did she say pulled it? It. Did she appear happy at all on these occasions? No. Did she appear happy with the relationship? He asks her about their move to Aberdeen and Brenda eventually going to Allen Street. Was Brenda someone who cared about her appearance? Very much so, yes. Was she someone who would care about the cleanliness of her flat? Very much so, yes. This question was deliberate. Something for the jury to store away. Did she have any contact with Kit Harrison after the divorce? Well, I, he used, she was convinced that he had been to her flat in Allen Street, although he was supposed not to go. And she was convinced he'd been there. And... I think the next door neighbour had seen him right. as well. well. Okay. When you say he was not supposed to be there, do you know why that was? He was just following her around. She thought he was stalking her. But do you know if she took any legal action to prevent him going near her? Yes, she did. Right. Okay. Yes, she consulted at the listener. Did Brenda Page ever mention anything to you about a cup of tea? Yes, she had made some curtains. She was very proud of these and apparently they were ruined when he threw a cup of tea over her. On the other hand, were there occasions when she reported kind and considerate 
behaviour by Kit Harrison? Well, he kept turning up at her place of work and following her around, and I think he even went on some conferences when she went on them, and they weren't for him. She was never sure where he was going to turn up next. Was she happy about him turning up? No. No, he... Was Brenda Page security conscious? Yes. In what way? Well, her little flat was on the ground floor and she had painted it herself and the windows were stuck fast when she painted them. And when we commented on it, she said, well, I'm not going to release them because I feel safer with them when they're stuck. Do you know which windows she was referring to? The one in her bedroom and the one at the back. This bit really hit me. I can usually be an objective observer, no matter what the evidence is, but I've been stalked and I could relate to this. Imagine choosing to remove the option to open windows in your home out of fear. Do you recall Brenda giving you a, a will at one time? Well, I didn't know it was a will. Yeah. She just left me a letter just to be opened in the event of her death. Right. Do, do you have... I guessed it was a will. Right. Now, c can you see that? Uh, handwriting says, to be opened only after my death. Brenda M. Page yes. stroke Harrison. Did, was that the document yes. that Brenda gave you? Yes, it is. Do you remember when that was? Not exactly, but it was before she was divorced. I think it was about 75. Okay. And you see it is a handwritten document starting, this is, yes. my, this is my first and last will and testament. I, Brenda Marlon Harrison, known as Paige, wish to leave all personal effects and she details them to my sister, Rita Doreen Ling, and gives your address. And it's dated the 7th of April, 1975. Is that correct? Can you see that? Yes, it yes. was. Did you expect to receive this document? No, I didn't open it until after she died. I just thought she'd left it for me because she was traveling abroad going to several conferences. I didn't think it was uh, relevant to her marriage at the time. It was only afterwards I uh, put two and two together. 
what, in 1975, according to this document, she left all her personal effects to you and you alone, is that correct? Yes. When was the last time you saw your sister, Brenda? It was the weekend before she died. Where was that? At home. My home. In, in Ipswich? Yes. How was she? She was staying with us. How was she? She had been to a conference that was very successful and she was in really good mood but she didn't want to go home to Aberdeen. Why not? Because she was afraid that her ex-husband would still be pestering her. Did you receive news some days later about her demise? Uh, the police told me before that. They came personally to the door. Did you travel to Aberdeen after receiving that news? Yes. Is that with your mother? With my mother. All right, thank you. Brian McConaughey KC is Dr. Harrison's defence counsel. You're about to hear him cross-examine Rita. Interestingly, he used to be a prosecutor, which is not uncommon. Alec Prentice also switched sides, having been a defence lawyer at the start of his career. Mr McConaughey has silver hair, blue eyes and perhaps a sharper demeanour, but that's necessary for his job. He has to challenge the evidence and each witness. Mr McConaughey. Good afternoon, Mrs Ling. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, and can you see me OK? Yes. All right. Now, your sister told you about a number of things that she claimed Dr Harrison had done to her. Is that correct? That's correct. Am I right in saying that you never saw anything happening to her yourself? No. When they got married in Ipswich in May of 1972, am I right in saying that Dr Harrison and his best man both stayed with you? Yes. And am I also right in saying that during the time he stayed with you, you thought he was very good with the children in the sense of trying to get them interested in things like fossils and what have you? Yes. So far as Brenda was concerned, did you know if she and... Uh, Kit, Dr. Harrison, whether they wanted to have children or not? We never discussed that. So it's just something that you didn't know whether she did or whether she didn't? Yes. 
it's personal, isn't it? You don't ask things like that. I, I suppose it is, but uh, sometimes people do tell their family whether or not they're trying to have a family or want to have a family. No, nothing was said. Right. Every question Mr McConaughey asks is for a reason. You'll find out the reason later in the series. He went on to ask about their mother working at a hotel in Ipswich and being gifted linens when the hotel was bought over. Do you know whether... When that happened, your mother was gifted a, a lot of the, the old linen and things from the hotel. Bed linen, bed sheets, that kind of thing. Yes, there were some old ones that they got rid of and the new laundry company changed hands. And do you know if your mother gave at least some of that to... Uh, Brenda? Yes. Now, you, you mentioned one thing that you saw, which was a, an injury to Brenda's head, a, a red mark, I think you described it as. And she told you what had caused that. But I think from what we've discussed already, you never saw that happen. No. During the time that she was married to Kit, it seems that she wrote the last will and testament that you were shown by the, the learned advocate deputy, the gentleman that was asking your questions before me. I think the date on that was April of 1975. Uh, and... At that time, in April of 1975, as far as you were aware, I think, she was living with Kit, Dr. Harrison. Yes. He then asks her about their living arrangements after the divorce and whether or not she knew if they'd spent time together. Did she know that Kit had been asked by Brenda to look after her cats? She did not believe they'd spent time together unless they'd bumped into each other and she did not know if he had cats at. She only knew of Brenda's neighbour looking after the cats. She added a sweet insight that Brenda had rescued cats, and often had a few. You spoke about the fact that at some point in time, they were living in separate houses. He stayed in what was the former matrimonial home in Mile End Place and she purchased a flat in Allen Street. Is that correct? I presume so. I can't remember if it was the same time or not. Well, it's... I, I know sorry. she was... Carry on, I didn't mean to interrupt you. She just... He actually had thrown her out of the house once, so by then she had enough and wanted a place of her own. Now again, so far as whether or not Kit threw her out the house or not, that's simply what you were told by Brenda? Yes. Are you aware of the fact that at some point, and I think you mentioned this in passing, that both her and Kit went to Mexico to a conference. 
Yes, but I don't think he went with her. Okay. I think he just went on his own. But to the same conference? Yes. Uh, and are you aware that he also went with her to a conference in Austria? don't remember that one. And when they were at the conference in Austria, they shared a room. Are you aware of that? don't remember that. No. This is the first mention of foreign conferences, apart from the joint minute. And at this stage, the significance is unclear to those listening. Now, in due course, the ladies and gentlemen may hear evidence that Kit, Mr Harrison, was in the home of your sister in the week after she left you in Ipswich and before her death. Was that something you were aware of or not? Yeah. A tactic often used by lawyers is to use the line the ladies and gentlemen may hear evidence. It's suggesting a narrative and it's to signpost them that it may be important to remember and is likely to back up the line that they will be following. You, you spoke about the flat at Allen Street and you spoke about the fact that the windows were painted. I think you described it as stuck fast. You were never in Allen Street, correct? I went afterwards. Okay, but up until the, the point of her death, you were never at Allen Street? No. So I, I just wondered what you meant when you talked about when we commented on this. First of all, is the we yourself and your mother? We were together when we were talking about her decorating the flat. But presumably you're down in Ipswich and she's up in Aberdeen. No, she came home lots of times. Oh, all right. We were all together. Okay, but you're all together. I beg your pardon. You're all together in Ipswich, not all together in Aberdeen. Yes. All right. You mentioned an incident that she referred to invo involving a cup of tea yes. and some damaged curtains. Yes. Now, again, not wishing to labour the point, that's just simply something you were told. Yes. Did she say to you whether there was anyone else there at that time? Yes, she said Kit had thrown the cup of tea over her. Okay. A apart from Kit, did you say whether there was anyone else there at the time? No. D do you know or did you know someone by the name of David Ketteridge? Yes. Was he a, a former boyfriend of Brenda's? Sort of. A friend, I would say. What does sort of mean? 
I wouldn't say he was a straightforward boyfriend. You're, you're maybe deliberately talking the way you are, but what do you mean by straightforward? I think David was gay. All right. Was he somebody that Brenda was friendly with? Yes. And did that friendship continue throughout her life? Quite a lot, yes. The suggestion of this man being gay may not have been the answer the defence was expecting, but he pushed no further. However, his next line of inquiry was one we were all aware would come out in evidence. Did Brenda tell you about another job she was planning on taking up? Yes. Uh, And was that working as an escort? Yes. When, in relation to her death, was it that she told you about that? Oh, not long before. She told us when she was down in Ipswich. So, uh, we know she was down in Ipswich just before, the week before her death. Do you mean that time or no, do you mean it was some before then? Before then, all right. Before that. Okay. Was it after her separation from Kit? Oh yes. What was your attitude to that plan? Told her not to be so stupid. What made you take that view? Because we associated it with prostitution, but she assured us it was nothing of the kind. To your knowledge, did she go ahead with that career? Yes, she did. She was joining with a friend, but the friend thought better of it. Do you know who the friend was, by any chance? Sorry? Do you know who the friend was? I've forgotten her name now. She was a doctor. Do you mean a medical doctor or a... Name. Do you mean a medical doctor or a PhD? A PhD, probably. She was in the same line as Brenda. He stops there. No doubt this fact was a surprise to the jury. But Brenda's initial studies were in London, is that correct? Yes. And after she obtained, I think it was a first-class honours degree at London, (coughs) did she then go to Glasgow in order to study her PhD? Yes. Did she ever tell you about an occasion in Glasgow when she was attacked by a stranger? Yes. Uh, And was that during the time of her her university studies? Yes. Uh, And was that a, a street attack? 
I presume so. I don't know the details. You, you were asked a question by the, the Landed Advocate Deputy, and I, I'm not sure that you, you actually answered the question. From time to time, as well as telling you things that Kit had done to her that were unkind, did she also tell you about things he did which were considerate to the extent of buying yes. her... Buying her presents, taking her out for meals and such likes? Yes. She said it was so unpredictable. Can I just mention that we've uh, lost our picture of you, although we can still hear you fine. Okay. That might be better for you. He ends on a moment of levity with the video link not working. They decide to press on with audio only for re-examination by the prosecutor. I just want to ask you about one matter, and that was the escort work that your sister did. Did she give a reason why she embarked on this? I think she was quite hard up, and it was good money, and she loved going out to nice restaurants and to company dinners and things. And she met some very interesting people. That was her response. Did you make your concerns known to her? Yes. What was her response? <laughs> Typical sisterly reply, you're old-fashioned. All right, thank you. Or... And with that, the case was adjourned for the day. I deliberately didn't headline Brenda's part-time work as an escort. It was headlined enough at the time of her death and interpreted as some sort of double life. Her PhD, her critical work as a cytogeneticist, her value as a human, diminished because she got hired to be a dinner companion in order to pay her bills as a newly divorced woman. Sadly, there'd be judgment even now but imagine what it was like in 1978. In my interview with retired Deputy Chief Constable Bill Adams, he acknowledged that this was a huge factor in the press interest. Brenda Page murder excited the community in a way which perhaps few other murders do, especially when the details began to emerge about the sort of person Brenda Page was this talented scientist who was also uh, an escort agency employee. Uh, we make good copy for the journalists. It also meant a huge amount of resources had to go into excluding any clients from their inquiries. It had to be investigated ad nauseum uh, until uh, we were satisfied that that end of the investigation could be concluded. Of course, the police had to investigate all parts of her life, including clients she'd met. And it's important those exhaustive efforts to exclude this line are demonstrated in court. Much more will be heard on this subject. It's not often I interject with my views, but victim blaming is something I've seen too much of in my career. And just as the judge asked the jury to keep an open mind, 
I ask that of you, the listeners. In the next episode of The Storyteller, Naked Villainy, a first-hand account of Kit Harrison's abuse by Brenda's closest friend. He threw cups of tea over her when he got angry because the tea had got cold. The damage caused after an alleged assault. She'd been in hospital at some point because he'd attacked her and she'd had hemorrhages behind her eyes. And a catalogue of abuse detailed in Brenda's letters to her divorce lawyer. Aggression, constant, with threatenings resulting in physical damage, on average once every six months. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review as it makes a huge difference to guiding people to hearing this important story. This is an entirely independent production and your support is greatly appreciated. And if you want to hear exclusive interviews, longer episodes and insights, please head to the Patreon. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening. This is a piece of history and you are for the first time in this format witnessing justice being done.